the text and ask, why did the writer put in the text what he did? Thank you. A couple of other things. Very quickly, because we have to, I want to break and move on to some examples that I think you will find um, interesting, at least I think they are. The Greeks, uh, the Greeks, excuse me, look at information about God. The Hebrews want relationship. Do you know about God or do you know God? I find this fascinating. When my generation says, that makes sense, you know what we mean? Oh, I understand it. When an Eastern thinker, or to use the words of a, a book that you all ought to read called Carpe Manana, the words of a thinker in your generation make sense means, ah, it fits my experience. A Hebrew makes sense doesn't mean I understand it. Does it make sense to you that the Bible says God chooses those who will be saved? And in another place, it says it's up to you to decide whether you're saved. or Does that make sense? Not here. There's no logic to explain that. But that's a Western mind to say, does it make sense logically? The Easterner looks at religion as life. The Westerner, religion is accepting something intellectually. I made my commitment to Jesus when I was 13 years old. On my way home, I'm stopped for a train at a crossing. And the thought crossed my mind that if the devil had sat at that board meeting where they asked me the questions to see if I was a believer, he would have given the same answers I did. What is the only way to be saved? Believe in Jesus. What is faith? What are the sacraments? What are the Ten Commandments? He knows the answers, but he knows them here. To an Easterner, it's who you are. A Westerner says, I want to find the meaning of life. I'd love to talk to you one-on-one -on -one and ask you how many of you have wrestled with that. What, what is really the meaning of life? You know what? I walk into Jewish settings and I'll say, have you figured out what the meaning of life is? You know what the answer is? Who cares? You know what the Easterner asks? What is the purpose of life? What am I doing? Not who am I. What am I doing that's meaningful? You will never figure out who you are fully. It's what are you doing? And if what you're doing is meaningful and fulfilling, and I would argue God-honoring, that's what matters to a Hebrew. Does life have purpose, not meaning? What needs to be done? Oh, there's so much here, you guys. I, here's another big one. In the West, emotion is suspect because it always lets you down. You've got to keep your brain about you. Think clearly and unemotional. An Easterner's got to stand up with me a minute. Say these words after me. If I say, I will not mention him again, or speak in his name, then his word becomes a fire in my chest. I am weary of keeping it in. Indeed, I can't. Please sit down. You feel that way? 
is the word of God a fire inside of you that every once in a while when I started my teaching career I was new in this and I was so afraid all my students were going to think I was a nudnik because I was emotional so I played it cool I stood behind the podium and then I got into the Jewish world where rabbis who know the Bible by memory in several languages can recite large sections of the Talmud, which is 23 volumes with small print, break down in tears because God is so amazing. Laugh. Bless God. Where the whole, somebody will jump up in the middle of class like I just asked you and say, stand up. And everybody stands up and say, he'll say, say these words with me. And he'll begin to recite the text. And the text just flows out of his soul. And everybody stands there reciting the text with tears running down their faces because God is speaking. How often does that happen in the Christian college you go to? Why? And then I have people say, yeah, but that's all emotion. Those people are all emotion. You say that to somebody who knows the Old Testament by memory. One last example, and then I'm going to break and take a couple of questions, and then I want to do what I call the smorgasbord. I'm going to show you several pieces of the Bible and what happens if you put them in an Eastern section. Eastern setting, excuse me. Wash my tongue this morning, can't do a thing with it. Um, this is a replica of a first century oven in Galilee. Jesus would have known these well. The disciples would have worked around them, or at least the women in the community would have worked around them a lot. There's an outer shell which collects the smoke and prevents that from going into the house. And the chimney comes out of there. In the winter, they can dampen that a little bit, damper that a little bit to keep the heat in the house. The fire itself is built in this little beehive-shaped thing, and the cooking pot sets in a small opening at the top. And that's how they would cook. Most food wasn't cooked, but when they did need to cook something, it was done over a fire like this. Now, the common fuel for the fire was either the pressings out of the olive press. They would take the olives and smush them all up and squeeze all the oil out, and what's left are the smushed skins and the pits. And it'll, when it's done being pressed, it's drier than sawdust. It's dusty, but it burns like crazy because it's got a little bit of oil in it. Or, and that doesn't last long because most people only have a few olive trees, four, five, or eight, maybe 10 if you're rich, or the animal droppings. And they go out and collect the droppings of um, donkeys and camels, especially cows aren't common there, but when they did have cows, they collected those as well. They dry them and they burn those. They burn like charcoal and they don't smell. Many of your ancestors used the same thing if you were in the Midwest, at least. I know my grandparents did from in South Dakota. And you, you, don't, you don't smell that, Rosebud, you don't smell that at all. Um, but what they learned is that if you mix salt with those fuels, the chemical reaction, I had somebody explain to me what that was, but I know almost nothing about chemistry. I wasn't a very good student in chemistry because I didn't apply myself, I guess. But if you mix salt with it, it burns hotter, longer. And after about 10 or 12 fires, the salt loses whatever chemical properties it has, and it doesn't do that anymore. So they dig it all out, and they throw it out, and they put in new. Now listen to Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. 
If the salt has lost its saltness, it is good for nothing but to be thrown out on the manure pile. Tell me that doesn't add something to the picture of salt of the earth. Yeah, salt is preservative. Yeah, salt is flavoring. Your mission is not only to flavor and preserve what's good. Your mission is to be mixed with the animal dung of our world. And if you lose that property, that mission, you are worthless to God. Who are you and why are you here? If the fire in your soul is not saying, whatever I do, from computers to medicine, from teaching to homemaking, whatever I do, if it is not at its core my way of showing the world that there is a God, be careful that you haven't lost your saltness. Ask yourself how else salt loses its saltness besides the fire. Now, what I would like to do from this point, we'll take a short break, and I'd like to ask for a couple questions if there are any. I would like to give you what I call a smorgasbord. And for me, that smorgasbord should be at least a college semester in length. But what I'm going to do is to take an Old Testament concept and then Jesus the rabbi from the New Testament and show you what happens to the biblical story if you plug it into an Eastern context. Questions? Some of you have just been asking them, great, but there might be some. Yes, ma'am. Well, it was kind of uh, 20 years. <laughs> Actually, I came back from Israel. I finished a master's degree, came back from Israel, and lived in New Jersey and began to work in my graduate, my doctoral program at Yeshiva University in New York City. And I was in that program for 15 years. I'll be honest with you, the first course I took. Um, it was called the Aramaisms of Daniel. Oh, I'll never forget that. I walked in that class, you know, like, okay, I may have to put in more time than you guys do, but I did well in college, and it was a tough college, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it here. In that course, I believe there were 800 points. I got two, and I think they were a gift, honestly. And I went to the registrar, and he kind of looked at me, you know, I'm very Jewish. He said, you're making it, are you? No. Well? You want a refund? I said, no way. I'm going to take it again. Same course, same course. Same teacher, same teacher. Same, I'll do it again. But you can't hand it, I'll do it again. I did it again. I still didn't pass. It took me three times to pass the first course. But I stuck at it. And my goal was not a degree. I never, I, my first class, see, again, this gets into the whole Hebrew mind. Two things happened. The prop walked in. Rabbi, it was all men, because in the rabbinic tradition, it's, it's all men, walked in. Of course, everybody stands up. You don't have to, but everybody, same as my students do in high school. Everybody stands up, right? The rabbi is here. You'll understand this afternoon why everybody stands up when the rabbi comes. Okay? So he did two things to start the course. I don't know if I'm going to, somebody will have to ask me about the other one. But the first thing he did was he looked around, and he, like this, and he went, You, recite Genesis. Okay? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> if he looks my way, I'm going to faint and somebody will have to carry me out because I, kids stood up and said, in the beginning, God, stop, 
Read it again. Recite it again. In Hebrew, of course. In the beginning, God stopped seven times. And then he said, if you don't believe that, there's the door. Because the rest of the book isn't going to make any sense. And it dawned on me, we Westerners want proof for the existence of God. You can't prove God. That's the whole nature of God. Of course he exists. And there are all kinds of evidences which can strengthen our faith. Praise the Lord. God says, believe in me by faith. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. You believe first and then you can see him. And you've got to believe him by faith. And I'm sitting there thinking, whoa. By the way, I had tried two other graduate schools. One was called Princeton. One was called Yale. Now, I don't know that I would have gotten into any of them, so I'm not showing off on that. Both, I sat in several classes, and in every stinking class, the prof spent most of the class I was sitting in questioning whether the Bible was really true or not. And I went to this Jewish university where they didn't even believe Jesus is the Messiah. And it, this is the, the second thing the guy did after we all sat there, you know, and the Jews are kind of used to this kind of upfront stuff at the beginning. And then he said, and if anyone is here for a degree, I want you to remember something. Rectal thermometers have degrees, and you know what we do with those. We are not here to get a degree. We are here to become men of God. And if you don't intend to try to become a man of God, you don't belong here. Now tell me once, what would happen in the typical Christian college? But listen to me, not to knock or you. Why? If we really believe this, and if we love God with all our heart, and all our soul, and all our might, what are we ashamed of? What are we, what? Question, there was another one. Yes, ma'am. Hebrew. How long is it? Um, well, I had eight years of academic Hebrew. Did Olpan in Israel, where you go to Israel and you live and you speak only, they only speak Hebrew to you. Ran in the store and told the guy I was a terrorist. And because <laughs> the word for terrorist and tourist is very close, like in English. Um, it was raining. I went in the store and said, um, it's raining outside. Do you have a noodle? Because Ithria is noodle, Mithria is umbrella. Um, it was it was fun, but yeah, it was mostly in Hebrew. Yes, sir. Okay, that's probably one of the better questions I'm going to be asked all day today. If I was a rabbi, you know what I would say to you. Come on now, tell me you immediately recognize this because of your intense knowledge of the scripture. Blessed are you, what's your name? Brady. Brady. Blessed are you, Brady, son of Barry. Barry. Flesh and blood did not tell you this, but my father who is in heaven, you'd say in Hebrew. Who said that? When did Jesus say that? To, who, to whom did Jesus say that? Peter. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Shimon, son of a dove. Flesh and blood didn't tell you this, but my father who is in heaven. That is the greatest compliment you could ever get from a rabbi. That question came from God. I want you to ask that question at the end of the day. 
That is a great question, but there is an answer that you will be, if Jesus matters to you, you will be embarrassed and deeply hurt about. But I want you to see more yet. Okay? Good question, though. One more. Yes, ma'am. Susie. I'm saying, I think to a Jewish mind, the word of God, here's, here's a kiva. The way to a person's head is through their heart, not a way to a person's heart is through their head. Westerners exist that if, if I can get your head, I may capture your heart. Now that happens sometimes, praise the Lord. The Easterner says, if I can reach your heart, your head is going to follow. No one loves God with all their heart and not with their head. Many people have God in their head, but their heart is of stone. So I'm not, I'm, I don't think you can separate them. My point is, well, again, I, I'm, I'm seeing a point this afternoon where this will come up very naturally. In, in the Jewish mind, what you want to do is to capture the fire in people's souls so that they want to fill their head with the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is worship to a Jew. This is worship. You have worshiped all morning. Only if your heart. Otherwise, it's been education. Now, that isn't to say facts don't generate. Um, I like this one, mainly because ah, I got all the names on it. This is the kind of stuff we do if you ever join one of our seminars. And um, we get off the beaten path and try and get as deep as possible into the biblical world, as far from people as possible, and see how it was. That is the road from one of the little settlements along the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. Believe it or not, people think of roads, they think that's a road. And few people still walk it, not many. We were hiking in that area. And as we were hiking, the student, I, we were climbing actually, and I sat and said to the students, I'm going to sit a while, you guys go on ahead, I'm going to meditate. Actually, I was beat and they were much better shape than I was, so but I didn't want them to know that. So they took off. Well, they got up above me a little ways, and they kicked up a whole flock, herd of the goats that live in that area. Beautiful, beautiful animals. Just, And those animals came down the side of that hill, I mean, what looked to me like a hundred miles an hour, just Boom, just boom, 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 little ones, big ones, just, and I'm sitting against the rock. I heard the rocks falling, and first reaction was one of the kids had slipped or something, and they went by me on both sides. They didn't know I was behind this rock, and they, and honestly, they were dead outrun, and I'd say the, the slope was at least this. And I'm sitting there thinking about Habakkuk, also in the Psalms. Probably David. David wrote that part of the psalm book according to Jewish tradition, and he's in the same area, so it's probably... David, who wrote this first, he, it says, God, make my feet like the feet of a deer, so I may stand without fear on the highest places, literally from the Hebrew. And something hit me. All my life, I had thought that that psalm was about God, allow me to be in a dangerous place and to be safe. And I realized that that probably isn't, I mean, isn't false. That's probably true, but there's more to it. Because what dawned on me was, I had spent my whole life asking God 
to give me an easy path. Make my path flat and wide and smooth and cool. And God says, it ain't like that. There will be times in your life where your path is hell. It's straight up, it's extremely dangerous, and it's one big rock after another in 120 degree heat. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but if you haven't been there, you will. What David understood was not, God, give me an easy path. Sometimes he does. David said, God, give me the right kind of feet. Because if I've got the feet, I can handle any path you'll ever give me. And to those goats, that path that to me was a killer, they could do it because they had the right feet. God, give me feet for the path. Now, again, that's just an Eastern way of seeing the picture. Okay, here's what I'd like to do. You need a stretch break, maybe a bathroom break. Um, they had said take a break. I'm going to take two, but I'd like to keep them short. And I'll leave that up to you. If, you know, what you're going to do takes longer than the break, that's, I'm not saying cut that short. But um, I'm going to start again. I'm going to start again in seven minutes. Okay? So if you'd like to stretch, go get something to drink, hit the facilities, whatever. If you have questions, you want to stop up here, please feel free. And we'll start again in seven minutes. Okay, two um, questions came up, and this, by the way, is also very Jewish. You don't all have to be sitting in straight rows and listening. The rabbi just starts talking, and you do what you need to do, and I'm going to begin. There were two questions that I thought were worth um, repeating to you. Not only the, the answer, maybe even more the question. The question came from a gentleman here who said, I, want that, I, I feel that passion too. I feel the passion. How do you keep it? And I can't go into the whole answer I shared with him, but the Easterner very rarely reads silently because in the transfer from the information to the mind, there's little emotion. An Easterner wants to hear the Bible or to say the Bible. The Bible was not written in the first place for individuals to sit and read silently. The Bible was written down so that somebody could read it and you could all listen. I never, in any of my study or devotion, read the Bible silently. Never. Always out loud. Because when I talk to you, do you know that I feel passion for what I'm doing? What if I wrote this down? You know how much would be lost between the page? If you want to keep the fire you feel in your soul when you meet God face to face somewhere, the best way to do it is to have a small group of people, believers or not, that you can talk to about it. Because when you tell them, not when you write it, when you tell them, the emotion comes out. It keeps the fire going, always. Always tell, 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 tell. Tell them, tell them, tell them. Second question was, somebody said to me, man, that's how I think in pictures. Listen to me. We wouldn't have ADD with an Eastern learning style. 
Because ADD people, almost to a person, or ADHD, learn visually. I get kids that sat in high school class, and we beat them and beat them and beat them. Get to Israel, and no more in one day than the valedictorians are going to learn in the 16 of our 16-day walking the Bible seminar. Because they learn that way. And yeah, so much I want to tell you. Okay, let's do a smorgasbord approach. I'd like to take you to a part of the Old Testament and talk to you a bit about what happens to some of the biblical concepts if you put them in context. The context I'd like to use is the desert. Now, just a little bit of Greek information here. The Jews think of themselves as desert people. They're scared to death of water. Who's been to Israel? Okay, several. How many cottages on the Sea of Galilee? 12 miles long, seven and a half miles wide, very fresh water, a lot of private land, no rules against cottages. How many cottages? Zero. Why? Jewish people by nature are scared to death of water. Do you know that Jesus' disciples probably couldn't swim? That in all the sailing they did on the Sea of Galilee, if you look at your map, only twice do they cross open water, and even then it's questionable. They, the, the sea is hell. The sea is the abyss. Why do you think the Bible says there will be no more sea in heaven? Because the sea is where the devil lives. You can't have a sea in heaven. The sea is being prepared, a fire, of course, for the devil. They're desert people. Abraham was a desert man, the founder of the Jewish people, the, the, the father of the Jewish people, Abraham and Sarah, father and mother. Moses, the creator of the, the religious cult, called in the good sense, the religious practices, was a desert man, 40 years by himself, 40 years with the Jews. David, the one who established the political entity of Israel, lived in Bethlehem, right at the edge of the desert, and spent 40 months running away from Saul, hiding in the desert. They are desert people. More than half, one well-known writer wrote, of the pictures in the Bible are desert pictures. So if you're going to start somewhere and say, how can I build this library that will help me to read the text more Eastern, I'd start with the desert. So let me show you briefly. If we could dim the lights a little bit again. And again, shout out your questions. Um, here's, you don't even need to raise your hand. I know it seems funny in, an, in a Western setting, but in the Eastern setting, if the Spirit moves your soul, you speak. And the rabbi, seriously, the rabbi trusts the Spirit in you to say, well, let's let the Spirit speak. Okay? This is generally a quick map of the land. Now, that is the land of the farmer. Coastal Plain, Shefela Mountains. That's where the farmers lived, and it's called the land of honey. Why? Because the honeybees make honey, obviously, from the flowers of the pomegranates, the grapes, the figs, and the olives. So it's the land of honey. It's where you find honey. It's so sweet and so wonderful. This is the desert. Notice a little piece of it comes up alongside the farmland. That's how you can get shepherds and farmers in the same place. And that's where the shepherds live. Now, the shepherds produce, their goats produce milk. So that is called the land of milk. 
people think Israel is a land of milk and honey. Well, it is, but that's different than what comes to mind because the land of milk and honey is a place where farmers and shepherds both can exist. Not in the same place, but right next to each other. So the shepherds are the producers of milk, not wool. The wool in a desert climate is very poor. They do have wool too, but it's not the kind of wool you would make clothes out of. This is the land of milk, that's the land of honey. Listen to Isaiah. If you do not obey me and keep these commandments before you, I will turn the mountains. No, sorry. I will cause the mountains to run with milk. And when you read that as a Westerner, it's like, what? If I don't obey God, the mountains are going to run with milk. That sounds like sort of a blessing. What did he just say? I'm going to turn the farms into a desert. So milk and honey. Now the desert itself, this is the honey land. And if you've been there, you know what I mean. It is unbelievably fertile. God, there's so, uh, I, uh, I could do that. That would be a great focus on the family. Um, we're hoping God willing to do a set six of the videos and we're going to call it the land of milk and honey. This is the desert of Judea. This is the desert of the Negev. This is the desert, the wilderness of Tzin. And this is the wilderness of the Sinai. In Hebrew, the word for wilderness is midbar. Midbar. Can you give me the lights again? I hate to keep doing this to people, but actually it's kind of fun. Okay. Now, in Hebrew, you don't write vowels. The vowels are pronounced but not written. Well, you can buy materials that put them in there for us Westerners, but in Hebrew, these are the consonants, the root consonants of the word. D, B, R. And in Hebrew, that's pronounced dvir. Dvir. Now, from the consonants D, B, R, dvir, you get the word desert. Midbar, dvar, midbar. You get the word dvir, which means holy of holies. You get the word devar, which means a sheepfold. And so to the Jew, when you say midbar, it's a place where the sheep are brought, and God's holy of holies is the place where God brings his flock. Now, literally, the word midbar, midbar, D-B-R plus M-I, means the place of words, the place of speaking. If you want to hear God speak, you have to go to the desert. You will not hear God speak in the farmland. Why? Because you're too busy doing it for yourself. You go to the desert where you will have to depend on God because that's where you will hear him. Okay? So let's go to the desert. I'm going to take you, I think, to Tsin, the wilderness of Tsin. Now we could dim the lights again. Okay. Yes. That's a very, the moment you ask a question like that, it's like, all right. I'm such, no, I'm such a nudnik. That tells me immediately with a group like this that that wasn't very well explained. Okay. The desert is a place where you cannot survive apart from the direct intervention of God. So when you are in the desert, you know that you depend on God totally. Because there's no other way. If he doesn't send water, if he doesn't provide bread, if he doesn't provide shade, if he doesn't provide rescue, 
you are going to die. So when you're in the desert, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, I cannot live without God. When you go to the land of honey, God said, be careful. When you leave the desert and you go to the farmland with wells you didn't dig and vineyards you didn't plant and houses you didn't build, you are going to end up saying, my hand, my strength has done this for me, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you through this vast and terrible wasteland. Be careful. When things are going well and you're doing it on your own, why do you need God? And so the Jew always wants to live in the desert. Because when you're in the desert, you have nowhere else to turn. Only God. And that's when you hear him. Well, I'm, I'm going to go on and, and it'll come back to your question. Let me show you what the desert looks like. Now, I don't know if that affects you at all, but that absolutely blew my mind. When I imagine the children of Israel wandering, and by the way, this is right in the middle of the 40 years. The 40 years wandering, if you made a circle about 40 kilometers in diameter, right here, the Israelites never left that circle for 39 years. Now, doesn't that change your opinion of the wandering? Some say it's because none of the men would stop and ask directions. I don't think so. I think they just had nowhere else to go. So for 39 years, they were... Here. Now put yourself in, yeah. 40 kilometers would be about uh, 26, let me think, 40, 10, 4, 6, 24 miles. So what's 24 miles here? I don't know. From us, it's from Holland to Grand Haven, a little bit farther. But look at this. Imagine all these people living here. And that's the road. You know, you see these Sunday school pictures of people wandering in the desert, and they're like 200 yards wide, the column. Give me a break. Look at it. That's the main road from Egypt to Kadesh. That's the road. Now, if you had a guess, what is the most dangerous thing in the desert? What do people die from in the desert? Okay, we've got some Bible students, or Israel students who've been here. People, go ahead, give me some answers. Heat, water, food, by f animals, and that's not hyenas today. Then it was lions, at, and in some place even probably the Syrian brown bear. The big, by far, the biggest danger is floods. Absolutely without question. Now, where you're seeing this group of students walk here, it hasn't rained here, measurable rain, we know of, since Jesus' time. But what happens is, in the mountains, 40 miles away, in the honey land, it rains. And I mean, in places like Bethlehem, well, Bethlehem, let's go a little bit, that's Shemesh, it gets 40 inches a year. And it all comes in about 12 weeks. Six weeks in the early rains, a little bit in between, six weeks in the late rains. Those mountains, just like the mountains out here, cannot handle 40 inches of rain. And it runs down to the Mediterranean, east to the Dead Sea, and mostly south out into the desert. And you get these tremendous canyons called wadis. And a wadi is a dry riverbed that only floods when it rains. 
And far more people are killed every single year. Last year, two Jewish students from New Jersey were killed. They hiked out into the desert. It was a hot day. Their water ran out. They got down into one of these canyons where there was a little bit of water left over from the latest flood. And on a cloudless day, not thunder, lightning, it hadn't rained in there in a thousand years, 70 feet of water came through that thing. Just boom. One they found, one, as far as I know, they never found. Flocks of sheep have often hiking found uh, sheep that were down in the wadi, got washed away. That is the most dangerous thing. Now, listen, let me show you. Because some of these canyons collect an enormous amount of water, and if you are in them, when the flood comes, you're going to, they call them slot canyons here in this country, you're going to die. You'll, you'd never get out. The Bedouin, the natives who live there, will stand with the end of a barrel on a wire and hit it with an iron bar off in the distance. Boom, boom. And the sound says to the girls who have the sheep, get out. Now, it's raining somewhere. They claim a Bedouin can smell rain 40 miles away. I don't know that that's true, but get out. Because once the water comes, once you hear it, you're going to die. Where that water flows, often along the bottoms of these canyons, you get pools that are left, and that's the risk, because you're so hot, and you're so thirsty, and sheep and goats, especially goats, get so hot, they'll go down looking for water, and if it's the flood season, that water may kill you. Not this water, but the flood. Now, when that water dries up, it leaves behind the stickiest, muddiest clay you have ever seen in your life. It brings that clay from up in the mountains and it gets six, eight inches deep. So when you walk, it'll come up over your ankles. And if you take about five steps, you'll have so much on your feet, you can barely lift them. Now listen to David. God, I'm stuck in the miry clay. Lift my feet out of the miry clay and put them on a rock. And I see David picturing himself in one of these canyons. And he's stuck. And the flood is coming. And there is absolutely nothing he can do. God, help me. I'm going to die. Get me out of here. Been there? Ever been in a situation where due to your sin or someone else's or just due to circumstances that God allowed, you are stuck and you can see the disaster coming and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. My daughter Allison, that I began this class with, the love of my heart, you know how you are with kids, you love them all equally. She was the baby and I loved Allison with a passion and Allison went away to college and walked away from God and began to hang out with some people that I, and I, I tell you honestly, I stood in that wadi week after week after week and I could see the flood coming. I could see it. I could see what was going to happen to that kid and I couldn't do anything about it. And I was, God, please just take me out of there and get my feet up on the rock because I can't do anything. That's the song. And there's power in the picture. She's doing okay, by the way. Jesus picks up on this. When the water dries up, in some places, here's, it, it's unbelievable. I've seen it not actually come through. You aren't very often, fortunately, when you see it come through. You have to be really careful. You don't hike in the wadis in January. Um, in February, March, not without knowing what you're doing, you want to be awfully careful. But when it dries up, you get the clay some places, 
Oh, let me let me say something about this. I'm going to tend to do that all day because there's a million pictures. I love to take people and just walk. And you take your Bible, and most of you, I've, if, you're, if your heart is with Jesus, you wouldn't be a quarter of a mile, and you'd be sitting somewhere ready with your Bible out saying, this is here. And people see it. The pictures are so powerful. This is water. Sorry. Okay, you're Western educated, so I thought maybe I'd fill you in. This is water in the desert. And this is water in the desert. This is what Psalm 23 calls still water. This is what Psalm 23 doesn't call still water. Notice, neither of them are moving. What is still water? Still water is water that came there other than by a flood. And the word still in Psalm 23 comes from the Hebrew word shalom. It's the water of peace. What that means is, without knowing anything, you could get down on your hands and knees and drink out of this water, and you don't risk a flood. Why? Because that water isn't flood water. It came from a spring. So it's not in a canyon. This water looks just as good, just as fresh, same with this, if you got down on your hands and knees here on a totally cloudless day, could be the end. Now, if I'm a sheep, who knows the difference? I don't. Only the shepherd does. That's why when Psalm 23 says, the Lord leads me by still water, it means when God says, RVL, drink this. And not this. You've got to take him at his word. This works real well with high school kids. Because high school kids are the thirstiest people in the whole world. And I don't mean literally. I mean they want to drink in life. But you can't tell them what they could drink in that's going to kill them and what they could drink in that's going to help them. Where the water dries up eventually, that's not still water either. What's left is in some places clay. And where there's a bend, it will leave the purest white sand you've ever seen in your life. Now, the Middle Eastern people, Jews and Arabs today, do not live, did not live in biblical times and don't live mostly today on the coast. The sand they used for concrete, for glass, was always sand they mined out of the bottom of a wadi. The rainwater runs through these limestone hills. It melts the limestone. You get all the chemicals that are in limestone, and you get that very fine white silica sand that makes up limestone. Now, listen to a great rabbi. There was a nudnik. I'm sure he said that. I don't think he was speaking Greek. There was a nudnik, we say a foolish man. There was a nudnik who built his house on the sand. Where did the foolish man build his house? In the wadi. It's not the sand that's the problem. Any builder will tell you they'd rather build on sand than clay. Compact, drains, easy to work with, easy to move. The problem is the guy, it'd be like I said to you, I build a new house. We can look at Lake Michigan out of all four sides. Really, where'd you build it? I build it on the ice of Lake Michigan. And you'd say, well, that's really stupid because the ice is good. When Jesus said the stupid man built his house on the sand, they all said, oh, that's, I can't believe he did that. And your little song, actually, very few songs are culturally accurate. They're theologically accurate, but not culturally accurate. And the rains came down and the song has it right. The foolish man built on the wadi, the wise man built on the rock up above, and eventually the house is going to fall. 